Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know me already, my name is Jonathan Bennett, and I'm the campus pastor for Holy Cross, Daniel Island, and it is so good to be with you here today. You know, one of the things about this strange time that we're living in is that everyone is recommending things to do. In fact, I feel a little bit overwhelmed by all of the recommendations I keep receiving, whether it's activities for kids and families, or recipes to cook, or ways to tighten up your budget, or tips on how to stay healthy, or books to read, or games to play. There are all kinds of ideas out there, including what TV shows to watch. This week, I was recommended to watch two shows, so I tried them both, and they're pretty different. The first one's called The Tiger King. It's a Netflix show. In fact, amazingly, it's the number one Netflix show in America right now. And it's amazing because Tiger King isn't some action-packed thriller, as you might expect, but a true crime documentary series about the life of a flamboyant Oklahoma-based zookeeper, Joe Exotic, who is the self-proclaimed Tiger King. The directors of the show had originally intended to make a documentary about the world of venomous snake trading, but they changed gears after discovering Joe, who you have to admit is a documentarian's dream. He's garrulous, he's self-mythologizing, but he's not self-aware, and he has these imploring eyes that pop on camera, and a personal life that's as chaotic as his professional one. The series focuses on big cat conservationists, like Carol Baskin, who's the owner of Big Cat Rescue, and then also collectors such as Exotic, who Baskin accuses of abusing and exploiting wild animals. And one of the first things I learned that surprised me and might surprise you was that there are more uh, tigers in captivity in the USA than there are in the wild around the world. 5,000 tigers in the US, but just 3,200 tigers in the wild. Well, for all the kooky moments in the story, and there are a ton, the main narrative is actually just plain awful. At its sordid core, it's about the abuse of both animals and humans. It's not a quirky romp about whimsical big cat fanatics. And the self-proclaimed Tiger King, Joe Exotic, well, he's a criminal. The second show recommended to me is called The Chosen. In fact, I believe Chris Warner actually gets money each time that he recommends it. (laughs) That's about once a day at least. It's a television drama based on the life of Jesus Christ. You can either watch it at their website or you can download the Chosen app on your smartphone and then broadcast it to your TV, and I do recommend it. The series stands out from others about Jesus because it portrays him through the eyes of those who met him, people such as Mary Magdalene and Nicodemus, and it's actually pretty powerful stuff. And what's also pretty unique about this show is the way that it's funded. It's done through crowdfunding. So if you like it, that's you, the crowd, you donate, and then they can make more series from the life of Jesus two pretty contrasting shows, both very engaging and both about kings of one kind or another. But one's about a man who's clearly a fraud and can easily be ignored, and the other one's about a man who claims to be God and whose deeds back this up, and they demand closer examination. Well, today's Palm Sunday, and we encounter the second of these kings in our gospel reading known as the Triumphal Entry. So far in 2020, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke in chronological order. We've been seeing Jesus' life and his mission unfold from that of a baby in Bethlehem to a man baptized 
and sent out on mission. It's a mission of taking on evil, healing sickness and disease, and teaching his upside-down kingdom message that the poor are blessed, that we're to love our enemies, that we're not to judge others, and so much more. Luke's been laying out for everyone who'll listen exactly who Jesus is. And he's doing it in a precise manner because he wants people to make a well-informed decision based on a trustworthy account. But now we skip ahead. The church calendar interrupts our year and we pause for a few weeks to deal with the high point of Luke's gospel, Holy Week and Easter. You see, Jesus has finally arrived in Jerusalem and he's no longer seeking to hide who he is but he's boldly revealing it to everyone. And what we'll see today is that the one true king has arrived. But he's riding into Jerusalem, not on some mighty chariot, but on a donkey. And his crown will be made of thorns, and his earthly throne will be in the shape of a cross. Yes, we are encountering the upside-down kingdom of Jesus Christ once again. So let's turn to our gospel reading. You can find it in your bulletin, or if you have your Bible handy, let's open it up to Luke chapter 19, and let's see what the king would say to each one of us today. Well, the context of our story is that Jesus has been heading towards Jerusalem for a while. He knows his final destination, and having just been in Jericho with Zacchaeus, he heads closer to Jerusalem. In verses 28 and 29, we read, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. He drew near to Bethphage and Bethany. Now, we're not really sure where Bethphage is, but it's likely a suburb of Jerusalem, much like East Cooper is a suburb of Charleston. We do know, however, that Bethany is just a couple of miles east of Jerusalem. It's a place that appears in the gospel numerous times, probably because some of Jesus' best friends live there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Perhaps you've uh, heard of them before. Well, between, between Jerusalem and Bethany sits the Mount of Olives, Olivet, and it's here that Jesus now arrives. In verses 29 through 31, we read this. At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. As ever, Jesus' disciples are sticking close to him. It's what good disciples do. They stick close to their rabbi, watching and learning as much as they can. And now Jesus has a clear mission for them. It's clear that also that he's orchestrating exactly what's going to happen. As one commentator puts it, Jesus planned every detail. Now, I wonder how many of you, like me, got up early to watch the two most recent British royal weddings. Prince William to Kate Middleton in 2011, and Prince Harry to Meghan Markle in 2018. They were both incredible occasions of epic proportions, costing tens of millions of dollars. And yet, they were also different from each other. William and Kate's was more formal, as you might expect from the eldest son and future king of England. And Harry and Meghan's was more informal, as you might expect from the youngest son and the more playful of the two, with even the rendition of Stand By Me by Ben E. King sung in the middle of the service. Both were making a statement about what kind of royal marriage they intended to have and who they were as individuals and now married royal couples. And Jesus is doing the same thing here. Bishop N.T. Wright says this, for Jesus 
It's a royal occasion to be carefully planned and staged so as to make exactly the right point. And the point is that the one true king has finally arrived. The king who should be listened to, who should be obeyed, and who should be rejoiced over. And the first thing we see is that for his point to be made, he needs his disciples to listen to him closely. He's being very specific, and he wants the disciples to hear him and follow his instructions to the letter. He needs a particular kind of animal, one never ridden before, perhaps making it suitable for this sacred purpose. He needs it from a particular place, and he even explains exactly what they're to say should they be challenged for borrowing this animal. You know, I wonder what would have happened if the disciples had headed off to a different village and brought back an old camel. I think Jesus would have said, "Uh, nice try, guys, but listen again. Let's try this one more time. You see, the details mattered. You see, the image of Jesus on the colt recalls Zechariah 9.9 in the Old Testament and the ride of the humble, peacemaking Messiah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus wants people to understand that, yes, he's the Messiah they've been waiting for, but he's not the kind of king they thought that he would be. The kind of animal he's riding denotes someone who comes in peace. He's not the military ruler who's going to overthrow the Roman occupiers. No, his purposes are far more important than that. He plans to conquer two much greater foes, sin and death. And while the disciples may not understand that yet, and they may not know the significance of their part in this, they just need to listen to what he's saying now and follow his commands, and all will be revealed later. Well, fortunately, the disciples get it right the first time. And so there's no holdup for Jesus' plan. In verses 32 through 34, we read this. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So having heard Jesus' commands, the disciples obey him, and they do as he asks. It sounds obvious, but it's a crucial part of the story. No obedience, no Palm Sunday, or at least not as we know it. And it's not just the disciples who obey him, but the owners of the cult too. Hearing the words, the Lord has need of it, they readily give up this young animal. You know, it reminds me of the inevitable scene in any cop movie or show, right, where the detective is chasing a criminal and he needs a car. So quickly they flag down some passing vehicle, they wave their police ID or badge at it, and they commandeer the car for the chase. Well, actually, it wasn't that uncommon back then for someone to be asked to give up something like this. A dignitary, including a rabbi, could borrow someone else's property for personal reasons. But, you know, the owners in our story, they didn't have to say yes. However, they did. I wonder if they too were already disciples of Jesus. Perhaps they'd already encountered him and were more than willing to help him. We don't know for sure, but they do obey his request. And this makes all the difference. Well, now the triumphal entry can begin. Having listened to Jesus, having obeyed his commands, the disciples now get to see what Jesus has been planning What wasn't obvious is becoming clearer and clearer. Luke writes in verses 35 through 38, 
and they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now we see the disciples create this makeshift saddle and then they lift Jesus onto his not so mighty steed and before laying down their cloaks also as a triumphal carpet and off he goes. And the scene expands to a much bigger crowd of his followers. You know, we've gone from two to 12 to hundreds, perhaps thousands. And much like the crowd at a football game as the team comes running out, they go crazy. They are rejoicing, as Luke puts it. And what are they so happy about? Well, the Messiah's come. Jesus is the chosen one. And it's been proven by all of the incredible things that he's done that Luke's been laying out for us, healing the sick, casting out demons, feeding the multitudes, controlling the wind and the waves, even raising the dead to life. And so they rejoice. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. At last their king has come and they're going to celebrate Much like the parades that happen after a sports team goes through a long drought. Think the 86 years that it took the Boston Red Sox to win the World Series again, or the 108 years it took the Chicago Cubs. This is going to be a joyful celebration of epic proportions. They have been waiting centuries for this moment. And yet there are some people who aren't too happy about this celebration. And they aren't afraid to say it. In verses 39, we read this. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The Pharisees, who we've encountered a bunch of times already in the Gospel of Luke, are the self-proclaimed religious leaders of the Jews, a people who were all about the letter of the law, but really rotten to the core. And they know what's going on here. They understand who Jesus is claiming to be, and they don't like it. They have a lot of power to lose if the people accept him as their Messiah and King. And so they will not listen to Jesus. They will not obey him, and they certainly will not rejoice over his coming. But Jesus is far beyond telling people to be quiet about who he is. In fact, it would be pointless. He has arrived at his final destination, and now he doesn't care who knows who he claims to be. In fact, he wants it to be clear to everyone. You see, it's decision time. People need to decide what they believe about him. Is he the Messiah? Is he the King of Kings? Is he the Son of God, the Prince of Peace? Is he the way, the truth, and the life? All claims he's been making about himself. You know, it's a choice we each still have to make each day. Is he God or not? And if he is, will we be a people who will listen to him, who will obey him, and who will rejoice over what he's done, deciding each day to choose his will over our own? Or will we reject him because we're afraid of the consequences of having him as king in our lives, afraid of what we might have to give up, even though what we will gain is so much more? Or maybe there's a third option. Will we be the people who are easily swayed 
by the crowds and the situations we find ourselves in. In the good times, we might be all for Jesus as our Lord and King, but in the bad times, we might ditch him all too quickly. Remember that many of the multitude who were here on that first Palm Sunday had likely changed their minds about him by the end of the week. And on Good Friday, instead of shouting, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, they shout, crucify him, crucify him. Friends, these are strange and unsettling times that we live in. But one thing that we can know for certain is that Jesus still reigns. As the hymn writer Isaac Watts put it, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. You see, as we'll find out next Sunday, the grave cannot hold him. Sin and death are defeated. And so the king sits on his throne in heaven and we now have a way to be made right with God. A terrible tragedy becomes an incredible victory. Last week, as I was reading one of the many recommended devotionals about our current situation, I came across these words from Pastor John Piper. Nature is not sovereign. Satan is not sovereign. Sinful man is not sovereign. God rules them all. So we say with Job, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, God not only comprehends the coronavirus, he has purposes for it. God does nothing and permits nothing without wise purposes. Nothing just happens. Everything flows from the eternal counsels of God. All of it is wisdom. All of it is purposeful. For those who trust Jesus Christ, all of it is kindness. For others, it is a merciful wake-up call. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I wonder how will you respond to the true king in good times or bad? Will you listen? Even if what he says seems inconsequential, he is still speaking to us today through scripture, through other Christians, and through prayer. Will you obey? Even if you don't fully understand now what he's doing. You know, he has things he's calling each of us to do. Will you rejoice even if you don't feel like doing it? He has done great things and he is worthy of our praise. And will you decide to follow him and him only? He is the only one who deserves our very lives. These are the marks of a disciple in good times and bad. And these are the recommendations that the world around us needs to hear today. Who can you share them with? Friends, Jesus is Lord and he reigns. And because of this, we can join with the other disciples through the ages and all say together, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Will you please pray with me? Oh, sovereign king, we praise you that you are ruler of all, that you are the one who still reigns. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you will come now. Lord God, would you help us to listen to you? Would you help us to obey you? Would you help us to rejoice over all that you have done, even in these times? And would you help us to decide today and each day to follow you? For you are the one who is king of kings. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.